You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. My guest today on the podcast is Dr. Marielle Bouquet, who is a Columbia University-trained trauma-informed psychologist and professor, and she's got a great new book. It's called Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. Enjoy the pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Dr. Marielle Bouquet, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. In the introduction to your book, you talk about your own family's roots in the DR, the Dominican Republic, where your grandmother and mom grew up. And then your mom moved you and your sister to a low-income community in Newark, so you didn't have much, which led to your mom keeping a lot, even if these items were no longer functional. And this is a heuristic that I know scientists refer to as a scarcity mindset. And this all leads to you learning to let go of your grandmother's mug so I know it's a lot, but I'm wondering if you can do a little storytelling, and I think it's a good way of setting us where we are with this conversation in, in your new book. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, I think that any person who identifies as a cycle breaker, such as myself, has a moment in their life where it, beca- it becomes really, really evident that they are indeed either in need of breaking a cycle or are already on the on the cusp of doing so. And and for me, that moment definitely came when, you know, I the one item that actually connected me to my grandmother, which in essence was connecting me as I saw it to my roots and to um, a long lost uh, uh, connection to the Dominican Republic and to a lot of the history that was held there by my family was this mug where, you know, I, I'm a big tea drinker and tea is also a part of, you know, what, what has held my family together and has, has created a healing bomb for us. But losing, in essence, breaking that mug mistakenly and, um, feeling like that disconnection was, was there was that moment when I really had to wonder for myself, am I losing the connection to my roots? Am I not really connected to the people that I come from? Or, or am I truly forever connected to them? Because biologically, there's a connection. Psychologically, there's a connection. And there is a part of the generational healing that I'm engaging in that in essence is really a healing that will also help to absolve some of the wounds that they couldn't work through themselves. And so uh, the story of the mug is really one in which, you know, it's kind of like a story of that aha moment that I had that led me to understand, okay, this is the moment when 
healing needs to take place, what are you going to do now? It's funny. Uh, when I go around the country and, and talk to folks uh, about my life and, and my work, uh, a, a foundational story I talk about is when I decided to step down from second from running Second City. It was just after I wrote my book, Yes And. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I really, I, I just, I knew I needed a change. Um, and then Second City caught on fire and everything in my office was destroyed. Mm. So, and this, and, and people are always like, oh, and I'm like, no, I, I think there's actually, there's, yes, there, there's elements of that were sad, but for, for me it also opened up a world of possibility. And I also know this from, from our work, which is, we, you know, human beings desperately need to hold on to things because we don't mm -hmm. like this idea of impermanence, but it's always been there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think your, your particular story and, and your work speaks to this, not just a, not just a struggle for individuals, but, but for communities and, and for generations. And you say in the book, quote, being a cycle breaker is a multi-tier, multi-task, multi-generational quest towards peace. It's peace for you, those who came before you, those who come after you, your community and the global culture. So we, this isn't just healing for one person, right? This is, this is how we potentially heal the globe. Literally, it is how we heal collectively, how we heal as a global whole. So I, I appreciate you framing it that way because my, um, idea of cycle breaking is one that is not done in isolation. I think that because especially here in the North American context, we have this very individualistic mindset, especially around healing that, you know, we're just healing one human and not really accounting for the ways in which when a person is healing or when they have been healed from their emotional woes, how they then step into the spaces that they inhabit, into their family spaces, into their work environments, back into the communities that they're a part of, how they step into these spaces, being a person that is holding on to healthier types of coping mechanisms, which means that they're engaging with these environments in a healthier way. So there's always going to be some sort of a collective connection to the healing that we even do individually. However, for cycle breakers, many of us are not seeing healing as something that just happens within us. And for us, we see it as a, a way in which we can actually engage in a process where we can bring people into the healing with us and, and actually help them to heal as well to whatever extent they are able to heal. And of course, people will be variable. Like we may have, you know, um, grandparents or parents um, who perhaps are not able to do as much of the work, but can even do like something that's really microscopic. And that in and of itself is still something that can be accounted for as healing. I'm curious for you, how much of this is a relief? How much of this is a burden? How much of this is a particular relief or insight with regard to the world we live in right now because this is this feels like especially in the middle east right now that that it is it is so hard seemingly so hard for people to have empathy overall there's there's there, and and we've been going through side picking i know forever it just it feels particularly terrible right now and partly that social media and, and other things but man this is this is such hard work right now, I, I would imagine for you. 100% because we are in a moment yet again, because I think that 
we've been in these moments before, but um, the more recent history that we have on a global scale of when we've had these, we'll call them collective crises, you know, we can, we can say for sure 2020 and beyond. Mm-hmm. And then now, you know, it, it, in, in this almost kind of like collective grief that we're experiencing around, you know, the, the people that are being impacted within the Middle East and, and even any of us who really, you know, can, can empathize with that experience of feeling, um, targeted or, um, you know, feeling like, like our cries for help aren't being heard. So there is a, a, a collective grief and a collective crisis, an emotional crisis that's bubbling up and, and really, um, making it so that the work around generational healing is that much more important in the now. Yeah. Um, one of the thing that you talk about in the book and you repeat this a few different times, and I think it's really important is this idea. So, if, you know, if you're looking at your higher self, that there's no such thing as a perfectly healed self. And you say, quote, because perfect healing is a myth, end quote. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think that, that like, that, we know this in, in, in our work. The whole idea around the improvisational art form is this idea of um, seeing obstacles as gifts, making mistakes work for you, and acknowledgement that, like, the imperfect is always going to be there. And, and, and yet, perhaps that could seed an opportunity as opposed to just be a purely negative thing. But, but the fact is there is no Eden that we're going to find um, for those of us. And I think it's probably true for most of us. I don't, I don't yeah. know if you agree with that, that we all, we all have some, I mean, I certainly, you know, we lost our daughter to cancer when she was 17 and because we were so open about it. Um, and my wife and I both have worked in this community forever and people would share their trauma. And, and, and not in a sort of a comparative Olympics kind of thing. I think more of like, I hurt too. I know what your hurt is. I like, and it just was like shocking to me. Mm-hmm. I had just not lived a life where I thought that most people had that kind of stuff going on in their life. Yeah. I mean, it is said, and I think it, 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 in part, I believe it might be understated and maybe underreported because a lot of us are not quite at the place where we're willing to, or even know how to acknowledge that trauma has been a part of our lives. But the World Health Organization, um, the number that they uh, are holding on to in reference to how many people globally have experienced trauma or will experience at least one traumatic event in their entire lifetime is 70% of us. Yeah. Although, yeah, I think that even that appraisal is actually uh, low on the low end, yeah. But, um, but that is, you know, it, it, the, the idea of perfect healing or the idea of this, uh, sustained euphoria and Eden, as you call it, is in part what I think can make us unwell. It's yeah. the idea that there is this, uh, this level of healing or this level of sustained joy that is impermeable that many of us are not able to reach. And that idea, feeds hopelessness into our lives, which is a breeding ground for depression. And so I, I specifically made that mention so that we can also hold on to the understanding that not only is trauma very prevalent in our world, but also this perception that we will one day absolve ourselves completely of all the remnants of that trauma 
is is a really tough place to to kind of set our expectations because we will always fall short of them. Yeah, I, I know when when I was going through therapy and I did EMDR therapy, which was very powerful, and and I know a lot of other people who did, and it was bringing up a lot of stuff, to, familial stuff too, sort of realizing like. You know, and I grew up in very great privilege and lovely parents, and but but both my parents had just crappy childhoods. I mean, you know, my dad went from foster home to foster home and ran away from home when he was sixteen, and you know, you know, and, and my mom, her her father was uh, killed by a cop, beat up, mm-hmm. um, and 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 we had no relationship with any of these relatives. They were either all gone or or just there wasn't that 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 thing. And I'm like. Oh, I, it had not occurred to me until both in therapy and then reading your book even more that, oh, of course that stuff shows up. Yeah. And you talk about this too, and I, I have it in my notes in terms of how many different um, identities are inside us at any given time, and it's like mm-hmm. over 200. And talk yeah. to us about that. What, what, how, how could that possibly be? Well, you know, it, science is, is definitely speeding up in reference to helping us understand, you know, the genetic remnants that, that are left in, in our cellular memory. And so much of what we know right now is that although there, there are some studies, they're, they're very preliminary. So, you know, I, I didn't necessarily like quote them in the book, but there are some studies that are even saying that the remnants even extend beyond what I say there. But, you know, what we know is that there are at least seven generations that we are um, internalizing at any given point in time and that are reflective inside of our genes, inside of our cellular memory. And what that means is that um, there are, when we count back seven generations and only counting direct descendants, we're talking about 255 direct histories that live within us. And that's including our own. So it's 254, um, meaning parents, grandparents, great grandparents, and so yeah. forth. And then us being the, the other one. So it's 255 histories that can be accounted for to some extent within our biology, within our psychology. And it's so much to hold all at once, which is why for some people, when they feel themselves like having these big emotions and feeling extra tender, there is a real biological and, and psychological reason for the reasons why life may feel perhaps more heavy for you than it might for someone who doesn't have a direct lineage to a lot of pain. And we're t- I mean, so, so I was funny. I was driving in the car. I made a Spotify playlist and I was listening to a bunch of Duke Ellington and I'm like, uh. Love him. Oh, this, music, this music's 80 years old. <laughs> you know, like, and I do, like, I just start to think, you start to do the math in either direction. And, and then you're like, oh, the Holocaust wasn't that long ago. Slavery wasn't that long ago. The, the, the crimes in Central America were not that long ago. And, and again, we've already referenced the Middle East. I mean, that is just, just yeah. a never ending series of traumas. I mean, it, it's just the, 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 oh my God. So, you put that all together and I, I just, I don't, I don't know how you come out the other end of that without some level of humility. Yes. Um, and yet here we are. Mm-hmm. Which is why, you know, a, a part of the, let's call it protocol recipe, you know, that I uh, try to emphasize within the book and within my work also has that systemic element, Yeah, you know, and, and that understanding of what we need to do 
within our world, within the institutional practices, within the ways that we treat Mother Earth and continue to, you know, make her cry and bleed and like, you know, the, the, the exacerbation of hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and all these things that keep happening. Um, and in addition to that, you know, a lot of the cultural norms that we hold on to that, that can be really uh, toxic and unhealthy, th that we need to also start addressing those very forthrightly because those are also feeding these traumas into our homes. And it's not just that there is this very like, um, this family that lives in a silo that is completely detached from the rest of the world. It's a family that is also impacted by everything that happens outside of the world and, and that the world's traumas and the world's practices and the world's systemic injustices and, and everything else that happens in the world also pours into our homes. And so that's why we need to address a lot of those things as well when we're talking about generational trauma so that we don't have another Holocaust, so that we don't have another 400 years of slavery plus, you know, everything else that happened thereafter. If we need to, to continue addressing the ways in which, you know, in, we, we continue to burgeon, um, communities that are apartheid states. Like, why is that still happening in 2023? And so all of these things need to be addressed at the systemic level so that we don't continue to have um, this, this, these outpourings of really, um, huge traumas that tend to impact entire communities or the whole world. Yeah. I want to talk about some, some healing methods. So we had earlier this year, Anu Galati on the podcast, and, uh, she is a former academic who sort of went back to her roots in India and was uh, very much captured around flower essences. And it was something I knew nothing about. I also don't know anything about sound bath meditation. I, I maybe I know a little bit, but I want you to talk a bit about that because that's something that you, you, you do in your work, right? It is. It is that, you know, I, I'm a holistic psychologist and therapist. And so I infuse a lot of ancient practices inside of my, my practice, one of which, and, and perhaps the most popular among my clients and, and people whom I've shared it with outside of my therapy room has been sound bath meditations and sound bath, really sound medicine dates back to civilizations that are thousands of years old. I mean, there have been so many civilizations on earth that have used sound, whether it's through drums, whether it's th through my um, preferred method, which is uh, Tibetan sound bowls, um, and through even through the ways that people like chant in circles. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and so all of these have been like ways in which sound has actually created these like micro vibrations that have actually like penetrated, um, the body and, and helped to heal the body because the body is in essence like recalibrated through sound. So I, as much as I, you know, started to learn about these things, I started to think, well, if my practice is inviting in meditation, which I've been doing for years, and sound bath meditation through the bowls, through the Tibetan bowls specifically, um, there's an, uh, a, a sound that's emitted that actually has specific frequencies and vibrations that can help the body to feel calmer. And I'm working to, to help people whose nervous system has been basically uprooted and, and made to feel chronically unsafe. Then this is a tool that I can use and integrate into my practice so that people can feel like the work is more tolerable because their nervous system is is in a place where it's resting rather than in a state of threat. It used to surprise me when I discovered 
various people who were coming into the improvisational world uh, because they because they had social anxiety, because they felt broken in some way. And then pretty quickly, I'm like, well, no, this makes perfect sense. You are in a space where you're in communion with other people. Your only job is to make your partner look good. You have to, We have a phrase, you have to play the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in. That requires you to be fiercely in the moment. These are all things, these are all curative sort of healing things that you can do in community, which, which, you know, and, and the, the big discovery here was, which was kind of funny, which was, um, this, this started to happen more. And then we realized there was a social anxiety doctor who was prescribing his group to second city. So he didn't talk to us about it. We're just like, Oh, okay. And then we very specifically started working around improv and, and, and social anxiety. So, and I think it's, it's, it's so, it's, so cynical when people sort of wink at this stuff because it's it's there is a lot of um pretty robust scientific research around movement and around sound and awe mm-hmm. and being in nature and all these things that are are um uh well known that they 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 can heal mm-hmm. um, and so i'm curious for you like what 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 are people generally how cynical are people to to uh, your work, e- either as you know, in a one on one session or when you're talking to groups? Profoundly so. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is you know something that I've had to like really kind of um, sit with with a lot of grace and compassion for the people that are being cynical because one many of them have not tried the actual technique sure. and so they. Mm-hmm. You know, they're cynical because um, of whatever reasons they may have. But if you if you don't really experience it for yourself, then you won't really know the, the true impact that it can have in your life. Um, and so, you know, it, it, many, 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 many people on interviews, even, you know, one time I spoke to um, a crowd of thousands and I was being interviewed by a moderator and this person said, well, you know, without getting too woo woo about things, which is a common phrase that I hear so often. But, you know, we thought yoga was woo woo. We thought meditation was woo woo. We thought, and I don't even know what woo woo even, you know, means or, or it, what I do know is that it it's almost a way to discount the very things that can actually make us well which is a disservice that we're doing to many of these practices, including, you know, um, one of the, the most highly ranked and, and perhaps most underutilized, but, but definitely widely respected forms of therapy that we understand has the, uh, an immense impact on being able to alleviate trauma is drama therapy. Yeah, sure. and so, you know, and, and very often because it doesn't fit into the traditional ideas of what therapy is and what we've been, you know, mostly trained around, which is that Freudian psychoanalytic kind of like perspective um, and even cognitive behavioral perspectives that are more, you know, have been more, I guess, like easier to prove. We, we miss the mark on some of these other ways in which for example, in EMDR, as we mentioned, you know, a, a drama therapy, a, a sound medicine, and, um, you know, even dance movement therapy, like mm-hmm. any of those therapies that can actually be incredibly helpful and, and helpful in a sustainable way. Like it can actually help alleviate a person for the long term, not just, you know, put a bandaid on their hurt. What's funny about this is these are the same communities where they're like doing Myers Briggs. And then acting as if that has any science whatsoever to it. Yes. 
your tarot cards uh, that you're using for for your corporate, you know, whatever, uh, it, it, I, I believe was founded by some women who thought they were witches. I mean, this is it, it's so it's it's all framing, right? And I know this from our work, which is so we know we're selling play. God forbid we ever call it play. If I called improvisation, they'll get that. They'll understand that this is the stuff that made Stephen Colbert and Tina Fey famous and Amy Poehler. So they, you know, and and but if if I go down that play route, and again, so much research around the importance of play and that we need it, mm-hmm. um, and, and that in 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 Frank, like in children especially, like exactly. give them more opportunity to play. Yes, my kids both went to Waldorf schools. When part of the things I loved about that was that there's just so it's so play and story centered. Like especially in early childhood, they're baking and they're ironing and they're silks and there's I mean it's just lovely, mm-hmm. um, and they don't worry about writing and reading uh, well until after uh, a, a lot of other schools. And I, I have yet to see a kid come out of that school who couldn't read or write. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But parents freak out, and a lot of them pull the kids out when they get sort of worried about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like I, I think that. Um we are, maybe this is me being very hopeful, but I'm also kind of like keeping an ear out into like the next generation. And I feel like we, we're looking at a generation that is more open to a lot of the things that our generations and generations past have been closed off to. And, uh, what I do believe is likely to happen as a result is that people will be able to get into the practices that can actually help them to feel like more human, more whole, more well, and, you know, not have to spend decades of their lives in immense pain. And then all of a sudden have these breakdowns, which we see a lot in the mental health world where people start coming to us from the ER basically because they just couldn't take it anymore. Rather, we would hopefully have the next generation really get into these holistic practices and um, different ways of learning as you're, as you're referencing and, and different ways of being human, um, very early on and hopefully have a different trajectory than, than the rest of us have had. I do a thing lately where when I'm reading the book for an upcoming conversation like this, I will find a passage that I, that hits me and I'll put it on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, and I, and I, I'm always curious in terms of the reaction I get. I got a huge reaction to a passage from your book that, that, Ugh. I put in. So this is the one that I put up. Mm-hmm. Quote, humans don't do well with letting the unhealthy family tree leaves fall with evolution or with the unknown. Emotionally, we crave what we know. We crave the familiar, familiar people, familiar patterns, familiar behaviors. Even when the familiar is something that hurts us, we gravitate toward it. We repeat it. That's why many of us stay in dysfunction. We're t- we stay tied to family uh, bonds that, albeit hurtful, can feel comforting because they are predictable and keep us from facing uncertainty, end quote. Mm-hmm. The response I, I got was, whoa, that's a lot to unpack, or I, I, I see myself in this, or I see people I know in this. And and again, you know, from, from our work in, in the science community, we know that we crave these patterns. Yes. And part of what we understand is the upsetting of the patterns where all the good stuff is, uh, in a comedy sense, that's where that's that's what good comedy is. It's a surprising truth that gets there. Improvisationally, we 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 understand that we there's a phrase that a teacher Rick Thomas has. Colbert loves this one. I do too. Which is you need to fall into the crack in the game. So when you find that sort of little mistake, and you're like, go towards it. See see what you can discover there. It's okay. It's safe. We can do this together. And you find a lot of things. So 
you wrote it. Uh, talk, talk to us about what you were trying to get across in, in, in that particular passage. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, I was trying to really kind of uh, frame the concept of repetition compulsion, which is when we unconsciously go back into what we know and what is familiar, because there is this it, kind of like strange comfort there, even if what is familiar is something that deeply hurts us. And the mind and the brain really, it, 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 the brain has been called lazy many times, especially yeah. by neuroscientists and individuals that really, you know, study the brain from multiple angles. And in part is because the brain loves categories and mental representations that feel familiar. And, and so the brain likes to go back into all of those predetermined categories that it already knows exist rather than going into the abyss of the unknown into a black hole of what can happen. And that is part why it is so hard for us as human beings to even cope with grief because grief is basically telling us there is now a life unknown that you have to live after this loss, whether it's losing yourself, losing a loved one, losing the parts of um, your life that you already knew and understood moving to a different city, anything that is in essence a loss or something that is a drastic change for us creates this existential crisis or this this place where we just don't know what to do with ourselves. And typically what we tend to do is go back to the familiar. That's why a lot of people get stuck in toxic relationships and like really um, don't find a way out soon enough because at least it's almost like the devil, the the devil, you know, as they say, yeah. right? Um, and it's uh, in part because we at least know what we're confronting when we go back to the familiar versus who else would, would want me. That's a, an existential question. That's a what if, an unknown, a black hole, right? And we don't do well with that. Our, our mind is actually looking for what's familiar. You talked too in the book about post-traumatic growth, which we've talked a lot, a, a lot on this podcast. My friend Scott Barry Kaufman introduced me to, to the concept, uh, and and I know there's some people, there's certainly some literature now where people are questioning, you know, the, the um, validity of of any time it's self-reported, there's going to be that chance of people going, well, are, are people just sort of saying they feel better, or is it you know something else? But I don't know. In, in my own experience, there was a, I I just. I like who I am more now than the person previous to the terrible thing that happened. Mm -hmm. um, and that has generally been true as I've unpacked other things as I get older, because the other thing they don't tell you, I know, I know this is true from my sample set, which is those of us who are lucky enough to live past 50 start to figure out a lot of stuff that we sort of held down and kept down, you know, Catholic upbringing, classic, you know, push it down, don't talk about it. Um, and, and those, those family stories that get hidden. Yeah. Um, and for, for many of us, it's also a reckoning with that, even if we haven't experienced a, a, a direct, um, uh, kind of grief. Um, but I, so, so I'm curious for you, what, if, if you've experienced post-traumatic growth or, or what your experiences are with that particular term. Yeah. You know, a lot of the work that I, um, reference in the book, I help my clients through, but I also help myself and my family through it. Mm -hmm. So post-traumatic growth has been a part of my journey, but it also has been a part of the journey that my family, including my parents who are now in their sixties and seventies, um, part of the experience that they have, uh, also undergone in their own journey toward trying to shed some of the weight of the past. 
And, you know, the, the thing about post-traumatic growth, really what it asserts is that there is a period of our lives where trauma has occurred mm -hmm. and we can, in essence, like grow beyond it by generating new forms of strength and resilience, being able to, you know, kind of find the things that ground us and keep us steady. Um, you know, being able to make meaning of the new life that we are, you know, in essence, having to live beyond the point of loss or beyond the point of trauma and many other things. And for me, you know, I've had multiple points of trauma that have been both systemic and individual in my life. And I have had to basically take the the grief that I was then confronted with, sit through the discomfort of that grief and find my way making a new meaning out of the life that I now saw beyond those points of trauma. Yeah. Now I understood I was a person that was living with intergenerational trauma, mm -hmm. also living with generational healing, you know, mm -hmm. right in front of me that I was working through. And, and that I now needed to identify, well, what, what is the meaning of my life? Even, you know, with everything that I've suffered, like, what is it that I have to offer? A part of my meaning making is this book. Yeah. This book is representative of, you know, what I hope to pass forward to others as a way to, you know, make meaning of even, you know, the things that I've had to suffer through. And so it, it, it's, it's all in there, you know, like I think that it, for me, the personal is always tied to the professional and mm -hmm. I'm always, you know, like because I'm a lifelong learner and I'm somebody that's really curious and somebody that's always kind of very playful with like, you know, with, with the knowledge I obtain, I like to be a critical thinker and like really, you know, unpack the, the, the things that I learn and like, you know, see them from different perspectives. And I'm always going to be that person that's going to take whatever it is that I'm creating as far as new meaning in my life and find ways to really, really spread it as, as far and wide as I can. I love that. All right. We always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I do. Uh, so my yes and story is, um, you know, uh, when I attended my very first therapy session, it was, uh, gosh, 20, 2007, I think. My goodness. Mm -hmm. So in 2007, I went to that therapist. And during my first session, the therapist said, you know what? I think you would make a really great therapist. Mm. And, <laughs> and um, although it took me two years to really finally make that leap with the push of this person on a continuous basis, always ending sessions with, you know, a couple words of motivation, if you may. Um, you know, I, I think that's, that's a, a, the place in my life where, uh, you know, I said, you know, yes, I, I can do this and, and really at that at that point in time i felt like i needed to because i was my mind was being open to so much of the pain that was existing in the world and even in my own world um but it was a moment in which i you know i opened myself up to to the yes and to whatever would have come thereafter so the yes was really that first part and then the and is really everything that i'm even witnessing in my life now even the birthing of an entire book around this work did you like were you on a career path at that point or were you still, what were you doing? I was, I was five years into my advertising career. Actually, I studied. Well, you got out when the getting out was good. <laughs> yes. That's a broken but, industry. I know. And, and, you know, and it was, um, 
it was a world that was because the advertising is basically, you know, just capitalism on wheels, right? Like yeah. it was just me making these big media corporations money and finding zero joy in the work that I was doing because it was very like just a, a monetized, you know, kind of like profession. Um, so when I went to volunteer in my hometown and then I started entering therapy myself, those two worlds coincided, um, at the same time. And so, you know, I, 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 took a really, really, really big pivot. And I remember having a full summer of a panic attack because I said, <laughs> what am I doing here? Like going back to school full time, um, I must be, you know, uh, having a quarter life crisis, which is, you know, if that's a quarter life crisis that led me into the world that I live in now, I, I'm really grateful for it. The book is called Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. Dr. Marielle Bouquet, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.